I'm very proud to have one of my childhood idols here, broadcast journalist Howie Severino. Although he's one of those people where, you know, they use short terms to describe their large careers. No? So all over you describe yourself and you're described as a broadcast journalist, although I know you're much more than that. In fact, I remember when I was in high school that news came to us in the classroom of you being arrested during that time. Wow. It's a- so you're kind of a dinosaur yourself, huh? I mean, that, that, from one dinosaur to another, that, you know, it's was, okay for that us. That was like 30 years ago, maybe. <laughs> or or sorry, 30 years ago. There were several of the, of us who, who were who were arrested that day, right in front of Ateneo. It was kind of a major event there at that time. In 1985, no? Uh, so nakaupo pa si Marcos and there was a building resistance to him. And so, you know, any any incident like that kind of, became news, especially since I was arrested on the same day as Lino Broca and Ben Cervantes. Actually, that was that's the main reason I think people remember. A lot of people outside Ateneo remember that incident when I was arrested. I was, I was You're being very humble. You're saying that, uh, oh, oh, here's the guy who was arrested alongside Lino oh, Broca. Well, yeah, so mga headlines, parang Lino Broca and others. Ako yung others. Diba how you... Usually, well, I, I know the feeling because whenever I'm in a society page, I find myself lost. And in a society page, I'm always like the friend. <laughs> well, it depends on who you're standing next to. <laughs> next to, I don't know. So like, no, who, uh, whoever I'm next to, that other person is more, more, more popular and famous <laughs> and often a better person than I am. But it's not about me. It's about you. Because we're talking about the better person and it's that the rule still follows that I'm always with a better person. I remember when I was in high school hearing that in the classroom and, you know, as a person going to a private Catholic school, you know, it was almost sort of an other, you know, uh, it was also almost a weird, odd experience to be one degree away from somebody who was actually arrested, you know, during the Marcos regime, you know, for activist activities, you know. Yeah, well, back then it was a kind of scary thing, no? And I was also quite young. I was 23 years old. I was a teacher at Ateneo High School. It was only later on I, I got out and, you know, people were asking me to speak. And I, and I kind of realized, wow, this is kind of, uh, this is kind of a, a life-changing uh, event for me. You know, you've been arrested. But more interestingly, and for your younger audiences, you've had COVID. Yes, <laughs> I have. What do you want? You were patient number. Well, you were patient number. Twenty-eight, twenty-eight. Yeah. Well, you know, we're we're up to, gosh, ano na pang ilan ilan na bang yon? Like three hundred thousand cases na, no? So three hundred thousand, around three hundred thousand yeah, cases. Yeah, something yes. like that. So imagine that was really the early days when you could still find out pang ilan ka. Although somebody who's like really into data science started crunching numbers and said. You know, Howie, you're not really patient 2828. You're like some other number because 
you know how it is with with government data, diba? But that's so sad, no? Like you're you're already describing yourself as a statistic, and somebody disputes that statistic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah nga. Uh, well, well, you know, the reason why I decided to own the statistic is I wanted to humanize the statistic in the early days and up to a certain extent today. This disease is is very stigmatized, no? And there's a lot of hysteria about it, especially back then when there was much less known about the disease, no? And a lot of people who had the disease, even up to now, will not admit to it or will not talk about it publicly. And that prevents them, for example, from donating plasma, which is so important today because it's used as a is a therapy, as a, as a, a way of curing COVID. I, I felt like because I couldn't keep it a secret anyway, you know, I met many people in my office and, you know, media offices are, are full of gossips. Right? They're full of people who, who, who will uh, talk about things. And so I decided I'm not going to be able to keep this a secret. Although it entered my mind because when I got sick, there are very few people who knew. It was just my immediate family. And then I realized, you know, I'd rather come out in the open with this rather than people finding out through rumor, through Facebook, especially my neighbors, no? I didn't want my neighbors, you know, because, you know, out of respect for them, because I was in uh, isolation at home. Hindi pa ako nagpapa-hospital for about a week. I had high fever for a week, and I was feeling horrible, and I had not been tested yet, but my wife and I were already suspecting that I had COVID. And before I admitted myself to the hospital, I posted a, a statement on our neighborhood Viber uh, group saying that I, you know, I've been sick. I've got these symptoms. I may have COVID. I'm going to the hospital, but rest assured that I have not gone out of our home. And when I drive out of here, I'm going straight to the hospital and my family is quarantined. They're not leaving the house either. So I just kind of had to assure, and they were very appreciative. They're very appreciative of that. I was transparent about it. And to their credit, they didn't make a, an issue out of it. They didn't react hysterically. They did not demand that we leave, that my family leaves, then the community. Because that's happened. Diba? Front, yes. Front and I have to say, yeah. you, you, you had it early on in the pandemic, which yeah, means March. you must have, you know, you must have experienced the hysterics that a lot of the early patients had. And certainly a lot of patients have still, no? Or were you sort of like super chill, super calm about it? Like, I have it, you know, journalistic courage. Well, first of all, I was not in any situation where I could be affected by the hysterics. For example, there was no movement in, the, in our community to kick out our family because that's happened to others. Huh? People could not. I mean, yes, I, it has. I, yeah, there was a fellow patient in the hospital with me. And I, I found out through one of my nurses. He was already being discharged from the hospital, but he could not go home because his condominium association would not allow him back in the building. Wala namang ganong fear. I was not creating that kind of fear. People were not seeing me. But inside but you, wasn't there was okay. a fear inside you? Because you, you had a front line to the knowledge of COVID, right? You had a front line to how deadly it was, you know, and you got hit by it. Yeah, and you have to remember that early on, a lot of the news about this disease was about the deaths, the people who were dying. You weren't reading, absolutely. Yeah, you weren't reading about, but there were survivors, but you weren't reading about the survivors. It was very rare. 
that I, I know because early on, before I got sick, our news department was was saying, how come our news is full of people who are dying of COVID and not surviving COVID? There must be people who are surviving. So we were looking and apparently there weren't a lot of people who are willing to talk about it in, uh, because simply because, you know, this is worse than leprosy in terms of... You're talking about the social stigma of COVID. The social stigma of, yeah, it's worse than, worse than leprosy. I think it's the most stigmatized, the loneliest disease in human history. But I, I want to know if you thought that, you know, I guess this is it. Yes. You know? Yes. It got to the point where, you know, I, I called my wife saying, hey, I'm, I'm emailing you all of my passwords. Well, you're a better man than many because other men would not give up their passwords. Well, uh, you can be sure I changed some of them after that. Uh, Thank you for that tip. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but, but my wife was pretty confident because she was talking to my, my doctors. But I don't think my vital signs entered that territory where I was really critical. I mean, I didn't ventilate. I didn't have, you know, there was no intubation. Which was what I was really frightened of. You know, you know how it is. You know, they, they put a, a tube down your throat and that's what keeps you alive. But that's not how I felt. I felt horrible. And also the disease was playing with my with my mind. Wait, as, as, as I said, this is this is the loneliest disease in human history, meaning no one can visit you. And the only people who can see you are people in these space outfits where you can't recognize anyone. I mean, they don't even have name tags. So they talk to you, they have to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Ferdy, et cetera. And then everyone's in a hurry because they don't want to stay long with a COVID patient, right? So they do their thing. They, you know, they perform these procedures and then they leave your room. So it was, a, you know, so was, there was no one to talk to. Then you have all of these, all this news about people dying. You know, I have four friends who, who passed away. How long were you in isolation in the hospital? Uh, 11 days. Okay. But the worst part was about a week. In the hospital. After that, I started feeling better. My, you know, my fever broke, and I finally, you know, started entertaining, you know, the notion that you know I would have a post-COVID life, and I could start imagining it. And in fact, I started producing a documentary inside the hospital. Actually, my wife is the genius in the family because yeah, she she hired a private nurse, and I was very I was angry with her at the start because I you know I'm kind of a I like to think of myself as a hard-nosed journalist. I don't, I don't want to be treated differently from all these other... You know, this is what I wanted to ask. Did you sort of draw on your journalistic courage while you were there floundering for 11 days in isolation? Did you think, well, yeah, I'm a journalist. I'm supposed to have this kind of courage. This is what I'm going to draw, draw from. This is what I was born for. You know, journalists are known to have this sort of death wish too, right? Okay. Well, I, first of all, I, you know, I want to kind of dispel the notion that we have all of this courage. <laughs> I think what we have is kind of an ability to manage fear. You have to manage your fear. I mean, you know, I, I was afraid of dying, but I was not paralyzed because that's what journalists are trained to do. I mean, you cannot be paralyzed when you're confronting a dangerous situation because that's what's going to kill you. One major source of fear, and this is what you learn as a journalist, one major source of fear is the unknown, right? So if you can reduce the unknowns, there's always going to be things that are unknown. But if you can reduce the unknowns, you can also reduce the fear. But I don't think you can ever remove all of the fear because something's always going to be a mystery. And when what one of Well, the, you know, yeah. A lot of, you know, 
a really great, I heard somebody say, and this is really a great thing to remember, that a person who is scared makes the best courageous person you've ever known. A person who doesn't know what the risks are is not courageous. They're simply stupid. I can think of, you know, I can think of myself as being sensible and I like to meet challenges, but there are people who like to meet challenges even if they're scared of it. I guess my desire to have an interesting life kind of outweighs the fear of dying sometimes. Is this why you stepped out of the classroom? You were a school teacher, you told me. You taught in high school. And all of a sudden, you had a journalistic career. My, my dad's a diplomat. So I, I grew up overseas. My siblings and I, we grew up in, in different countries. But my father was assigned to the United States twice. And the second time coincided with my college age. So I was able to go to a, a university in the States. I've had other guests who have talked about this, you know, being away from the nation, coming back to the nation, having a certain connection to the nation. You enjoyed an education and an exposure to culture and to, in a on a global scale that very few other Filipinos have had. Why did you come back? I knew that history was being made in the Philippines. I mean, you know, I had this major political figure who got assassinated in such a kind of a uniquely ghastly way. I mean, it was there was so much drama happening in the Philippines. You know, I was a college journalist. I, I, I was a, I was an editor of our college newspaper in the States, too. So I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a storyteller. I, I majored in history. History was being... So there were a lot of reasons for me to go home. Um, I wasn't very... You know, at 21, at 22, you're not... You don't have to be that interested in money, actually. I mean, maybe now, maybe these ge the generation today. But back then... Uh, well, I don't want to be judgmental about the generation today, but if you're very young without a family and all of that, I mean, there, there are not a lot of material demands on you. And so uh, I was much more interested in the story, the story of the Philippines, the story. I mean, as a, as a, as a journalist, I wanted to be in the Philippines, but I didn't have a job waiting for me in the Philippines. So I applied at our alma mater and they welcomed me. I felt that it was a, a comfortable, it was a secure way of, Kind of easing myself back into kind of a kind of a, a helter skelter kind of situation in the Philippines from a very secure situation in the states. So being a teacher at Ateneo High School was kind of a very secure thing. But you know, by day uh, I was a teacher. In the evenings I was an activist. To be interested in the Philippines—that's something. A lot of people in the Philippines are not interested in the Philippines. In fact. Well, I was. Uh, uh, well, partly because, well, one, I I majored in history. I'd been, I've all, I mean, high school pa lang, I, I was already interested in history. There's a saying that journalism is history in a hurry. Well, history, you can, you can also call history journalism in slow motion. I don't think I really had much choice but to be aware of my identity, to be to be aware that I come from this country. And, and, and as a journalist, you're engaged with the world. I, you don't become a journalist because you want to become rich, right? Uh, or you're, you're just interested in having a nice job and you know live the American dream and, and all of that. To me, journalism is a way to lead an interesting life. And you, know, you only live once, right? I mean, why, why live a boring life? And I want to go back to that. You know, I want to go back to the idea of us being dinosaurs <laughs> because what it means is that we were there before the internet yeah. And we're now we're here while the internet is here. And so many things have changed. And you probably have a great, I'm sure you have a great perspective on 
Now, when you look at being a journalist, you're also thinking of your audience. I have that memory. I have that experience. And I'm at least I'm able to tell the stories about those days, about that technological age too. Today's very plugged in, very wired, very interconnected you know, generation that doesn't have any memory at all before cell phones, before the internet. It amazes a lot of people for me to tell them, naabutan ko pang sumakay ng eroplano na punong-puno ng usok. So imagine that. Pwede magsigarilyo. Yeah. My dad used to smoke in airplanes, you know? Well, everyone, <laughs> everyone could. I mean, there was a smoking section. As You know, it's like, yeah. uh, it's like, a, it's like a peeing section in a swimming pool, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with the peeing section in yeah, a swimming pool. Yeah, uh, although I'm, sure, I'm happy to know that you are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, young, so, so... I'm trying to remember all those times I, I, I was in a swimming pool and now I'm trying to figure out if I was in the peeing <laughs> section at the time. From the point of view of the process, certainly journalism has changed. But from the point of view of the audience, I wonder if you've seen a change. I know you're on Facebook. When you make a Facebook post, it's widely shared, widely. People are engaged with it. People comment on it to the, to the thousands. And that's a different audience. It's a younger audience. Do you feel a difference? Oh, definitely. I feel empowered. Although, you know, we know the issues with, with Facebook. A lot of people complain about Facebook, but they still stay on Facebook. But, you know, somebody also said that self-publication now is the reason why media and entertainment is so rich because it's very hard to be noticed when everybody can publish whatever they want. Music, you know, writing, even movies. They can make whatever they want and come out with it immediately where it used to be so difficult. I mean, literally, you had to literally phone in your article and wait for it to be typed up before it got published. Now you literally just have to type it and it gets immediately published. So there's a, there's a huge crowd now. It's called the attention economy, you know, where you're vying for everybody else's attention, for everybody's, for this quantum of attention, you know. I mean, a very finite day for everyone. Do you find yourself in a more difficult situation as a journalist, not just for your story, but for the truth itself? Uh, you remove the technical barriers. Someone's main edge is no longer technical advantages or access to resources. Because before, if you wanted to edit a film, edit a, a video, you'd have to like pay an editing uh, a production house like nine hundred pesos an hour just to rent an editing suite. Right now, you can you can edit on your you know in your bedroom and for free and but not that doesn't guarantee. or or dare I say dare I say truthiness also. You know, it's no longer capital. Yeah. Well, now the edge is in how talented and original you are. And it's even more important than, uh, you know, the quality of your equipment or technology. I mean, you could have really lousy equipment, but if you have an amazing idea, an amazing way of telling a story or an, an original approach to you know, reaching audiences, then um, you, that's your edge. That's your edge, which I think is, is more fair, actually. Unfortunately, you know, this, this entire uh, ecosystem, this entire, you know, approach to, to production and distribution is dominated, is controlled by just, uh, you know, a few big players, a few big companies that, you know, if you're, just, if you're a content producer, sometimes you'll forget about them because they make it so easy, right? Or a content uh, digester, well, as it Yeah, were. oh, oh. You know, if you're absorbing content all day, you don't even care what platform it is, it's on. Yeah. You don't care who owns that platform. Yes. 
you yeah. Know? And uh, especially if you're not a very discerning <laughs> uh, consumer of, of information. And so that's, that's also why we live in such a dangerous time. So there's also a cost of not having to go through established media organizations like ours. Because no matter what you say about you know, so-called mainstream media or, or journalists, it's not usually our job to spread lies. You know, as much as possible, we try, to, we try to avoid doing that or inventing information and then spreading it. Certainly. Yeah. And it's also not, it was never usually also the audience's job to figure out if what they're watching is a lie. Or, or dare I say, dare I say truthiness also. You know, it's no longer capital. Yeah. Well, now the edge is in how talented and original you are. You never previously heard people talk about journalism as a whole being not very useful because everyone now is a, is a peddler of information, right? So parang, you know, what, why, why do you need uh, newspapers? Why do you need news websites when you have Facebook? I think also the idea that, is that people are not aware that when they share information, they actually create it. They peddle it when they share information. So there's a, you know, um, oh, yeah. this kind of personal approach this kind of personal responsibility, this kind of angle towards sharing is also kind of overlooked. So there's a large sort of, it's a, it's a large scale sort of devaluation that happens, I find. And as somebody who I looked up to as a journalist, who I looked up to for your being interested in our country, you know, I would like to ask you, are you still interested? And are you interested in this fu- the future of this country? Is it still interesting? Yeah, yeah I, you know, yeah, but in different ways now. I mean, I have to say, uh, and maybe it's because I've, I've gotten older, but so much has changed about journalism and the way the world works uh, or the way democracy is supposed to work. Basically, you reach a point where you're just doing it for love. I mean, did you ever think that? Like, basically, I'm just doing it for love now because love of country is also love. More, well, maybe, okay, love of country, but then you felt like you needed to expose, expose this outrage against the country that you love. The point of journalism is to help improve society. And the assumption there is that there's a lot of space for improvement. Well, in the age of Facebook you know, and Twitter, who is there to tell people what the role of journalists is? That's why you've got Subjects like civica in school, <laughs> that's where you're supposed to learn uh, how institutions work, uh, how society works. And I love your answer. It's a basic answer, you know? You learn it from school. Basically, that's the answer. And I think a lot of people sort of don't see that anymore, that this is, these are the things you learn from school, you know, that there's school to teach you things. In fact, I just want to connect it, uh, make a sort of, long connection to the idea of being a misogynist or being a sexist, you know, that is something that is taught and something that is learned. You know, you're not born a sexist or born not one. You need to learn how to be a good person. You need to learn how to discern the truth. It's not that you reject it out, you're born rejecting it or you're born with a certain frame of mind. Because when I look at the world, when I look at my Facebook feed, it seems that people are there with a very formed state of mind already. You know, it seems that they were born to be in this moment and they're born to reject certain things and accept certain things. When you said, you know, you had to learn these things in school, 
I think that's one major touch point, uh, sort of, in our own history of our history, where we failed a little bit. Do you think so? Well, you know, I, well, I want to add to that. No, I mean, you learned you learned this at home, also. I mean, your your values, right? I mean, sure. And your parents went to school, right? Your, yeah. your parents are supposed to have learned that somewhere as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just basic things. Like, I mean, basic things that we took for granted previously are now being upended, and it's now okay not to do the basic things, like tell the truth, right? A lot of people find themselves left behind or on the raw end of the deal when it comes to certain values. Certainly the the huge divide between classes adds a sort of fuel to this. Because people who are not on the right side of life will always feel themselves on the wrong side of democracy. You know, that they've been wronged by this system. That they were taught, that that people are trying to teach them was a good system, was the right system. So it's natural for them to think some are more equal than others. So people have to start thinking about whether, you know, this change of attitude towards democracy or towards the kind of system that we have, the kind of values that we have, is really an improvement. Is an improvement in their own personal situation and in the situation of society. I think that's what people need to think about rather than, because right now, you know, the part of the playbook, elevating loyalty to be the highest value, higher than truth, higher than you know, respect for uh, your neighbor, respect for, you know, the, the, the less advanced. Yeah, I mean, loyalty is, is, and you see this in the United States too, where, you know, obviously, for example, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm amazed that despite the, the, the clarity of, of, the, of Trump's defeat, there are so many people, all, so many of his followers who are denying that reality kind of co- totally disregarding the facts and the truth and what's what's staring at them in the face because their loyalty is greater than any other value that's part of the playbook that's part of the playbook in any kind of authoritarian or or totalitarian or any kind of personality cult actually where you, you you're kind of setting aside your you know, power of discernment, you know, your power, I mean, your, 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 your ability to, to think things through and just, just say, yes, I believe you. I believe you were cheated because that's what you're saying. It's no longer, you know, love of community or country or fellow man. It's become loyalty. Now, this is a global thing. There have always been groups like that and always movements like that in the Philippines and elsewhere. But that kind of tendency has gotten a lot of fuel because of technology. So it can go either way, no? I mean, there's a pessimistic view and, and then, there's, um, then there's, optimist, there's also an optimistic view. And I, to me, what hap- what's happening in America is, is, can be an inspiration that people can actually get their, get their act together and kind of inject a sense of renewal and uh, maybe a restoration of some basic values uh, which can happen anywhere in the world, including the Philippines. We need to keep harping that. I mean, we just give, we give uh, you know, the founding of this country kind of lip service without really knowing or remembering what that really means. But if you go back to Rizal, we all studied Rizal eh? for a reason. It's not just because he was a great writer, because he represented the values that are supposed to be the foundation of this country. And if you look back on what he was talking about, 
it was really human rights. He was basically, that's what he fought for, and that's what he died for, human rights. So if we dishonor human rights, we're basically dishonoring this country. The Lonely Hearts Podcast is brought to you by Esquire Philippines in partnership with Podcast Network Asia. For more info on their shows in the network, visit podcastnetwork.asia. Also powered by Podmetrics, the only analytics you'll ever need for your podcast. Sign up now for free at podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.